All right, I'll pray and then we'll jump into this. So, Father, once again, Lord, I pray that we might be led to Jesus through this study and through the scriptures and be given the wisdom to live our lives in light of that relationship. So, God, I just thank you and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so um, just jumping into your handout here, I have this title called The Two Ways. Um, and, uh, well, I have Luke 24 first. Um, Luke 24 um, is, is the passage that we've been in this whole time. Now Jesus said to him, Man, these are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things that are written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it is written. This is what's written in the Bible. The whole Old Testament is what he's talking about. Remember that? You know, he says that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed um, to all the nations uh, beginning in Jerusalem. And so it's, it's one of those things like, how do you see that? It never really said that word for word. And we, you know, we've talked a little bit about that. Um, that it all does lead to Jesus, and it is there. But this is how Jesus kind of phrases it. He's like, look, it, it was all written there. You just have to read it. And, and more importantly, that, you know, we finally come to this, my favorite one, uh, reading the Bible is meditation literature. It's not just there in, in easy-to-read print. It's meant to be reflected on, and through that reflection, this is what jumps out. Um, and so... Uh, last week or over the last several weeks, we've seen that the one of the fundamental strategies of biblical literature is repetition. When it starts repeating something, it's like a big, big like light, like hey, pay attention to this. This is pointing to something. Um, and sometimes it will repeat in a way that uh, it'll use similar words, similar pictures and ideas. And so, reading with imagery, getting the picture. And like, okay, this is kind of the same. So one example, I've already shared this with y'all if you were at church today, is Psalms 1. Um, Psalm 1, uh, starting in verse 1. Um, I love this. Um, it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. If you were here today, I talked a little bit about how this is a progression. You must walk somewhere before you can stand, and you must stand before you can sit. And this is a progression of settling down somewhere, of, of establishing yourself. And, and, and the, the psalm here is contrasting the blessed man and the wicked. You know, the blessed man doesn't establish himself with the wicked. And if you were here this morning, once again, instead, this man delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law, he meditates day and night. Um, and so, again, you have, a, you have a picture here of somebody walking and establishing themselves, not over here with the people that are tearing me down and, and pulling me away from God. No, instead, I'm going I'm to establish myself in Scripture, um, in the Word. And, and, and the phrase here is meditate. Hagah is the Hebrew word. Um, if you go to page two of your handout, it's up at the top there. Hagah is the Hebrew word. And so we're going to do one of the things that we've also learned about. How do we figure out the biblical definition of a word? One of the easiest ways is just to go look at all the places it is used. Um, and so sometimes you can pull up an English concordance and pull up every word that says meditate. But again, the thing with Hebrew words 
is they usually have more than one meaning. And so, for example, let's look at some of these. Starting in Joshua 1.8, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate, Hagah, on it day and night. So you may be careful to do all according that is written in it. So, so the first instance here is, is meditate. That's a word we're familiar with. Um, but, but it starts uh, kind of talking about um, this, this at nighttime, when, when you're dwelling on something or reading something, you don't usually read out because you don't want to wake your, your wife or your kids. So you're, you're, you're whispering. So, so that's one picture, and you'll see this more as we keep going. Another instance is Job 27.4. My lips uh, certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter, Hagah, same word as meditate, mutter deceit. So you have a picture of whispering, a picture of muttering um, deceit. Uh, here's another one, Psalm 2.1, the very next chapter from Psalm 1. Um, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples haggaying? A vain thing, De- devising. Same word. Hagah, meditate, devising. So you have this kind of picture of scheming. They're, they're, they're planning. They're planning for evil. They're scheming um, over here. Another one, uh, Psalm thirty-seven thirty. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. We've seen that word already. Utters wisdom. Um, just kind of spits it out there. You know, utter, mutter kind of thing. Um, his tongue speaks justice, and it's all having to do with the mouth, um, which kind of goes back to reading out loud. Uh, here's another one, Psalm 63, 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. How many of you, when your mind starts wandering, you can't sleep? Um, that happens to me way too often as I start thinking about something and I just can't sleep. Well, more specifically in this case, when he lays down, he focuses his mind on you, on God. Um, Hagah, meditate. Uh, Psalm 77, I shall surely remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on your work and muse, uh, celebrate, uh, praise on your deeds. Um, another, another instance here of, of meditating um, solidifying your mind, you know, focusing the mind on God's work and who he is. And this one's, this one's kind of fun. For thus says the Lord to me as the lion, as the lion or the young lion growls over his hagahs, this is the same word as meditate, hagah, growls, which is just really interesting. It, it really helps communicate that meditation the biblical definition about it of it is not this emptying of the mind as our culture kind of, kind of sees it, um, but it's a focusing of the mind, using your mouth to kind of mutter and 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 whisper and and growl um, or or scheme on something to focus on something. Um, that's the whole portrait of this word hagah. It's a slow, quiet mummering where you're repeating something to yourself as a form of focusing on it, remembering it. Um, my, my youth pastor, Josh Woodard, used to say to chew on the word, chew on the word. Um, and I'll come back to what he meant by that here, here in just a minute. But if you put all these uses together, it's a low sound that animals make. It's also what people do if they're scheming or, and planning in a corner um, or meditating at night. Uh, it, it's taking yourself uh, or talking to yourself um, or, 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 or 
talking in your head as well. Like when you're pre- preparing for a speech, you're, you're trying to say it out loud so you can get it in your head so that you don't forget. You're focusing your mind to gain insight and understanding is the purpose of meditation, to gain insight and understanding. This is what the blessed person does. Um, they, they meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And the result is that this person will be like a tree of life back from Genesis. If you were here this morning, I shared this, that, that Genesis 1 was all about this, this tree of life that everybody has access to, along with all the other trees except this one over here. And then they focused on this one. And that brought death. Um, but if you dwell on the law of the Lord, you become a tree of life to everybody around you. You produce fruit for everybody around you. You're situated, you're planted, you've established yourself next to the living stream, the living water that is going to feed you. That is the law of the Lord. And so this is the picture when we get in Psalm 1 um, of this meditation, of this this establishing yourself next to abundant life. Um, and this is what a blessed person does. This is a, a picture of this meditation literature. When you meditate on these three verses, not only do you read them and study them, but you start to wonder, okay, where am I establishing myself? Where am I walking? Where am I standing? Where am I sitting? What is feeding into my life? That's the meditation. You start, you read it, you reread it, reread it you reflect on it, you read it again, and you just keep going in that process. The Bible is meditation literature. It's literature for a lifetime. I've included a quote here in your handout, halfway down page two, um, from this uh, basketball coach, and he's also a, 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 a pro on leadership, a, a, a leader in leadership. Uh, but anyway, he says, the eight laws of learning are explanation, demonstration, imitation, repetition, 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 repetition. And I think that just really helps us understand a little bit more about the Bible. That is kind of the goal. One of the goals, I guess, is repetition. Just being in the Bible. So when I say that the Bible is meditation literature, I kind of hit on two things. Um, one, that the Bible is meant to be read, reread, reflected on, and read again. It's meant to be engaged in um, over time, quietly, out loud, over there, over here, doing this, doing that with this person, that person. Constant engagement in the Bible. Um, you know, just quoting Scripture, reading Scripture, thinking about Scripture, talking about Scripture. Um, again, my, my youth pastor, uh, back in the day, he told us to chew on Scripture, more specifically to chew on it like a cow. So you take a bite of that grass, that Scripture, you chew on it, then you swallow it, and if you know cows, they bring it back up, they chew on it some more, they swallow it, they bring it back up. Kind of a beautiful picture, right? Um, that's the goal of scripture is to do that exact thing is you're you're bringing it in and then taking it out looking at it again you're bringing it in and just reflect taking it out over and over um you know sometimes i think we make it seem like hey if you just read the bible 10 minutes a day all your problems will be solved and so many people do that and they walk away discouraged because they didn't get the answers they thought they needed or their life is still falling apart or they don't feel any closer to god a lot of people struggle and they don't always get it. See, the, the Bible was never designed to be served microwave style. 
Um, you don't hit 30 seconds and your popcorn's done. You know, the Bible's not, that's not how you get the, the wisdom and the life out of Scripture. It's meant to be, I don't know, crockpot style or, you know, cl- you know, take away all technology and do it all by hand or, or something like that. I don't know the best uh, analogy there. But the Bible is meditation literature that is, is it's literature for a lifetime. Spending time with it over time, reread, reflected on, read again. Why? Because at the same time that it's literature for a lifetime, it's also designed to interpret itself. It's a book that is designed, the more you engage it, to show you what it means. It's not going to list, okay, here's what I'm talking about. No, it's going to, hey, just, just keep walking with me. And you'll understand eventually. Like it, it's meant to design, uh, 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 interpret. It's designed to interpret itself, artistically designed to interpret itself, and encourages a lifetime of, of reading, rereading, and reflection. Um, there's this movie out there named Tenet. Um, if you, any of you've seen it, I'm a, I'm a big movie person, so I like to make these movie references. And it's okay if you haven't. So this movie Tenet um, is one of those movies when you sit down and you watch it. At the end, you're like, what in the world did I just watch? That was such a mind-bending movie. Um, in the movie, the bad guys find a... I guess it's the bad guys. I don't know. The bad guys find a way to reverse time. It's a time travel kind of thing, but it's not like this. You don't go from point A to point B and teleport back to point A. No, they're going A to B, and then it inverses time. And so now they're going backwards in time. They pass themselves like, and then they do it again and again, and you're like, what is going on? Like, it's a very kind of, a really confusing movie. But the more you watch it, especially if you re-watch it, the more you get it. You're like, oh, okay, I see what they did there. Oh, okay, this makes so much more sense. I didn't catch this to start with. The Bible is just like that. No matter which way you go through, it's meant to show you more and more. The, the author of the movie, the director, uh, uh, Christopher Nolan, uh, he, he based this movie off of a, uh, a piece of art that, that was found on a wall in Pompeii. It's called the Seder Square. Um, and if you read it, you have Seder, Arepo. Arepo was uh, a key company in the movie. Tenet, um, Seder is the bad guy's name. It starts in the opera house. Rotas is the machine that reverses or inverses time in the movie. But what's cool about this square, you have Seder left to right. And Arepo, Tenet, Opera, Rotas. Now, if you read it right to left, it says the same thing. Rotas, Opera, Tenet, Arepo, Seder. And if you read it top to bottom, Seder, Arepo, Tenet, Opera, Rotas. If you read it bottom to top, same thing. This is exactly how the Bible is, is, is that it's meant to be engaged from every angle, from every lens, every uh, facet, in this multifaceted diamond that the Bible is. Um, and, and every time you engage it, you see a little bit more. That's the whole push. That's the whole point of the, the, reading the Bible as meditation literature, is that these stories start to be replayed over and over. Maybe different characters or circumstances, but it's a replay. And it's, it's showing you more about what this story that you already read meant and this story that you're currently reading. Um, and I'll show you an example of that in a minute. 
But biblical stories in the Bible works in this kind of way. It's all design patterns. It, It may seem redundant or too repetitive, but it's all on purpose. It's all intentional. Um, and it's trying to get you to focus on this repetition or to take this story and this story that sounds similar or recalls imagery from this one and compare them and, and look and learn in light of both of them. That's meditation literature. It's literary art. It's, it's, it's a work that in art that interprets itself. The more you read it, the more you look at it every single way, it's going to show you a little bit more and show you more about this meaning and message. And scrolls, they were memorized, which made a huge difference, so you would pick up on things a whole lot uh, faster or differently. Um, and that, that's another, another reason uh, meditation, I mean, memorization is so important. But um, it, it, it's so foreign to us to read the Bible like that that we kind of have to retrain ourselves. Um, so, so the Bible is meditation literature, which means it takes time, you have to invest. That's the way it was designed, is for you to invest time into it, um, in, in all of it. And so the, the pressure is less about understanding it. You have 10 minutes of reading the Bible, and you need to understand what the Lord has for you out of those 10 minutes. That's not what the Bible's kind of going for in that fast of a microwave-style kind of thing. It, no, just spend time. Same with God. Just spending time with Him is is... Plant, planting yourself next to this life-giving stream. It takes time. Sit down for a little while. Just think. Engage your mind. Engage the Bible. So let me show you some more examples. Last week we uh, got to look at uh, Psalm 29. If you look on page 3 of your packet, you can kind of see it there. I'll read through it real quick. Um, but this is something that we talked about last week. Remember the imagery of a storm. You start to see kind of the image of a storm, that God is above it all, that God is above the waters, recalling waters from Genesis. Um, so anyway, give to Yahweh, O sons of God. Give to Yahweh glory and strength. Give to Yahweh the glory due his name. That repetition, it's leading you somewhere. It's leading, but then it changes. Because what you're giving is Worship, worship Yahweh, the majesty of holiness, the voice of Yahweh. And we talked about what the voice means. Um, this uh, Hebrew word, when you attribute it to uh, a person, it becomes voice. When you attribute it to uh, something over there, it becomes a noise or a sound. When you attribute it to clouds making noise, it's thunder. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The voice or the God of glory thunders. Yahweh is over the mighty waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. He is majestic. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. You have this picture of lightning and thunder. Breaks the cedars in pieces. The cedars of Lebanon, the northernmost part of Israel. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf. Mount Sirion like a young wild ox. Um, The voice of Yahweh strikes with flashes of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Kadesh is the southernmost part of Israel. The voice of Yahweh causes deer to give birth, strips the forest bare, and in his temple everything shouts glory. Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh is enthroned as king eternal. And this God who is above it all, this God who is powerful over everything, he is the one that gives to his people, just like Genesis 1. You know, if you look on your handout there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Earth was formless and empty. God was over the waters. But then God created man in his own image. 
the image of God he created, and God blessed them, said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, take my power, and be my representatives, my image, my rulers on this earth. When you meditate on these passages, you start to see the, unif- un- the unity, the connections, and then go even further with it. You know, here's one of them, one of them that really stuck out to me. Now, one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, said, let's go to the other side. So they took off. And as they were sailing, Jesus fell asleep. A fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came up to him and said, look, we're, we're going to die. And he got up, rebuked the wind, the surging waves. They stopped, and it became calm. And he said, where's your faith? Because they were fearful. They were fearful, and they were amazed. And they're like, man, who is this? That he commands even the winds, even the winds and the way, the water, uh, that they obey him. A picture of God over the waters. He's over it all. He's enthroned above it all. Here's another passage, Revelation. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the numbers of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb to be slain, to receive power, riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. What are we giving at the beginning of Psalm 29? Giving all of this. It keeps going. Created, uh, every created thing in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and to all that, all that I heard them saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion forever and ever. See, this is all just recalling and hitting on one another, jumping and tying all these passages together, uh, worshiping our God and our, our Savior. Um, that's the, the power of Scripture. That's the whole concept of meditating on it, is when you meditate on it, and you start to recall other passages like, this sounds like this. Oh, Jesus did this. I wonder if that was connected. Um, and your cause to just kind of submit to God's sovereignty because his power is over everything. He is, a, like, it just makes it so abundantly clear. Um, and I'm drawn to, to worship instead of worry or, or to have faith instead of fear just through the meditation over these texts. Let's look at another one on page four of your handout. Is where we're going. And I have here highlighted all the repetition. That's what the colors are. Um, But we're just going to read it, and then we'll kind of talk a little bit about it. Um, Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me. What do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go and borrow vessels at large for yourself and from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. And so she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons, They were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And then he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came out, told the man of God. He said, Go, sell the oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. There's the story. That's it. 
you know, when you first look at the story, especially when you look at this handout of all the, the repeated ideas or images or words, it just seems like a jumbled mess of repetition. But every time we come to a place where we say, why is it like that? Or why is that there? Again, it's an invitation to come deeper. It's an invitation to do some work um, to find out why. You know, reading this story, you can find the, the, the main theme, the plot arc, pr- pretty clearly that this woman went from death and debt to life and abundance by this man of God, the word of the man of this prophet. That's kind of the gist of the story. Um, but if you were to ponder on it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, um, recite it, break it down, the repetitions begin to open up intentional literary uh, arrangement. Um, if you go to the next page, you can kind of see what I mean. Um, that this, this has like a, a pattern to it. Um, there's, this chart kind of shows you that it starts off with debt and debt, and then he said and she said, and then get these empty, empty vessels, pour out until they're full. She gets these empty vessels, that she pours them out until they're full. Um, she says, then he says, and then the resolution of life and the paid debt. Like there's this pattern to it. But, uh, and, and I have some more things highlighted back on page four at the very bottom. Um, but one of the things that mo- sticks out to me about this uh, that I just thought was crazy is there's a lot of excess of words here. Like Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Mo. you know, this has a lot of, okay, you, you told me to go into the house and shut the door behind me and my sons. And then, okay, so I'm going to go into the house and shut the door behind me and my son. Like it just seems excessive. So you have an abundance of words, which is tied directly into the, the, what's happening in the story. An abundance of words and an abundance of oil. An abundance of words and abundance of oil. And as soon as the oil stops, the story ends. It's just crazy. Like you have six verses of an excessive amount of words. Then you have a few verses about this abundance of oil. And then as soon as it stops, the story's over. Like it's, it's all pushing this, this communication strategy. Like, like um, you can read the story like this. An A to B to C kind of format. You know, straight one line, and you're going to get a meaning out of it, a message out of it. But the Bible is also meant to be read in a non-linear sequence. To read all over, to bounce, to tie it together. And as you do that, you discover not only this meaning and message, but you discover layers of meaning and message. You know, you start to reflect on this uh, uh, literary design here. It reveals an abundance, an abundance of what? Words and oil. Um, what makes all the difference here? The word of the Lord, the word of the prophet of the Lord. You know, maybe this story is about how the word of God, through, through his prophets, through his people, can turn death into life and abundance out of nothing. And if only God's people will turn to him as creator, Trust in his words, maybe his words will take, uh, will bring about an abundance in my own life. Every aspect of scripture is communicating. Not only the words, but the way the words are written. Um, which is crazy. And, and, and maybe you see stuff like this. I know I do. You see these diagrams and you're like, that's cool. But that just, that's way beyond me. I've tried to do it a couple times. It's a whole lot easier in Psalms, I think, than these narrative stories. Um, well, I wouldn't say a whole lot easier. But anyway, you might come to a place where you're like, ah, this is kind of beyond me, and that is totally okay. If you feel like that's out of your league, that is totally okay. We're not all called. We're not all commanded um, to learn Hebrew. 
to read the Bible. The Bible is for all people of all places, um, in every language, and that's what's so amazing about our God. But here's what's cool, you know, the 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 the, the Bible is 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 meant for exactly where you're at. Uh, one way to to kind of help you with these kind of things is seeing it as movie scenes. You know, if you watch a lot of movies, again, that's me. Maybe maybe uh, books and stuff, um, kind of same concept. But when you feel like the camera angle just changed, like okay something just changed and i can like kind of mark that as scene one scene two that's kind of one one aspect um but here's a here's an easy way for us all to read scripture um and we're going to do this through an example so uh we've talked about um repeated words repeated scenes pictures um and how stories might have different characters and circumstances but they're repeating the same thing so um and we're on uh page six now of the handout but Genesis starts off, you know, in the beginning, God, and then God says that he saw the light was good. The light that he created, he saw that it was good. And then later on, um, he, he takes all the land, he creates the land, and he sees, he calls the dry land, and, and he saw that it was good. And once again, he, he, all the vegetation, the seeds, the trees, everything, he saw that it was good. You keep going in the story, day and night, separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. Keep going, and all the sea creatures, sea monsters, everything that lives in the sea, he saw that it was good. Then God created all the beasts of the field, everything. He saw that it was good. And after creating it all, humanity included, he saw that it was very good. He saw all that he made. Behold, it was very good. So at the end of Genesis 1, we come to this conclusion that God is both the creator of what's good and the seer of what's good, the definer of what is good. Okay? That's a conclusion that you can come to by just reading these words. You move on in the story. Uh, Genesis 2.9, kind of a retelling of creation. And uh, he says, Out of the ground, God caused every kind of tree to grow, pleasing to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So now we have another picture here of God creating this tree of good and evil. God created it. So God knows what is good and what is not good. Here's another example of it. Then the Lord said to his people that he created, it is not good for man to be alone. So not only is God the creator and the definer, of what is good, God also knows what is not good. He sees what is good and not good. We understand that with chapter 2, or 1 and 2. Well, the story goes on, and this snake enters the picture, deceives Eve, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, we have this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, and she thought, you know, make it wise. She took from its fruit and ate. And she gave to her husband. And he also ate. Um, and the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves uh, loin covering. So you continue in the story. You know that God is both the designer, creator, and definer of what is good and not good. And as soon as Eve decides that she is the definer of what good is, you can see things start to unravel. 
That's the picture being communicated, that God is the ultimate knower of good. And we learn real fast that when humanity tries to define good uh, for itself and take it into their own hands, things don't go well. Well, you come to the next story. They have a couple sons. You're like, okay, they're finally fulfilling what God told them, be fruitful and multiply and rule. And then all of a sudden, Cain gets upset, and the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you downcast? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, if you do good, will not your, won't you be lifted up? Won't you be encouraged? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Here's a picture. Sin is crouching like a wild animal, maybe like a wild snake. It's crouching at the door. Um, and so, again, you, you, you have this story here where, where Cain decides what is good in his own mind, and he takes uh, Abel's life. Um, and so, again, the story is growing that, that there is a deceiver and there is this uh, decision on what you see as good or not and if you take that definition into your own hands there's where the problem ends up well you continue the story um yeah you continue the story you know uh, or, or you go back to genesis 1 god sees what is good and 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 he gives it freely genesis 2 knowing good and bad is dangerous for humans god knows what is not good and he provides for good instead uh, Genesis 3, humans who want God-like knowledge of good and not good uh, too soon, they end up ashamed and guilty. And Genesis 4, they also end up dead. That's kind of the, the story here. Um, and just by meditating and following this word, you're learning more about what it means to define good and evil, what it means to submit to God, trust God, or to take. So here's what's cool. You can just follow these words, meditate on these words, and the meaning grows, and, and, and the application comes, and the wisdom sinks in on what is, how, how to live. How to live is kind of the, the point. Um, and there's all these connections. But not only can you track words, you can also track images and, and themes using like words and like uh, images and themes. So here's what I mean. Genesis 12, you're introduced to Abraham. Um, you know, God chooses a man to carry down this blessing. We kind of talked about this in the Messiah, uh, the Messianic literature. But here's what's so cool. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful, good woman. And when the Egyptians see you, They will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but they will let you live. So please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, very good. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And therefore he treated Abraham well for her sake. Gave him sheep, oxen, donkeys, and male and female servants. A female Egyptian servant. I feel like that's going to come into picture later. Female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you, 
not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is your sister, that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. So you can track some of the same imagery from Genesis 3. And if you take Genesis 3, so you have Adam, Eve, tree, and the snake, who in this story of what we just read, who represents uh, uh, the tree? Who is the one that is delightful and good? Sarai. Sarai is the one that is representing the tree here. What about the uh, Adam and Eve? And the, who took in this story? Pharaoh. Yeah, Pharaoh takes in the story. Pharaoh and his men take in the story. And the deceiver... The snake is Abram. It's the same story, just different characters and circumstances. You know, you keep going. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maid. Wonder where she got that Egyptian maid from, whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from childbearing. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will, I will benefit from that. I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of his wife. Sound familiar? Um, the vo- voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, gave to her husband Abram as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, Hagar, uh, her mistress, was despised in her sight. Hagar despised Sarai. Um, Sarai said to Abram, May, may the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between me and you. And then Abram responds, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Same imagery. Hagar is the tree here. What is good? In the, you know, what is going to benefit me in this situation um then you have uh, uh the, the human the, the the adam and eve here abram is the adam and eve he's the one that ends up taking i guess sarah did too and gave to her husband you see the same and then the deceiver sarah in the story is the one convincing abraham that this is a good idea and so there's more connections that you can track in these images um, just by following these themes but we're able to read and reflect on them and allow these stories to build on one another and give us a greater meaning. Uh, let's look at one more. Uh, I think we're on page 10 of your handout now. We kind of been jumping pretty far. <laughs> so sorry about that. Second Samuel. And it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle that David the king, you know, he sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They deployed, but David stayed home. Kind of a big red flag already. Why didn't David go with them? Now when evening came, David arose from his bed, walked around the roof of his king's house, and and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very good, very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman and said, Is this not Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay uh, with her, and when she had purified herself from her unclean, uncleanliness, she returned to her house. Um, yeah, uh, so yeah, that's kind of the short part, 
part here. So again, same imagery. You have Bathsheba as the tree, the one that is good uh, in this, you know, good for looking, delight, beautiful. And then you have uh, David as Adam and Eve. He took, he took, but who's the deceiver in this story? David as well. You just don't see it quite yet. Because the rest of the story, he's trying to deceive Uriah. You know, so, so these, the, these stories are just kind of repeating themselves. The Bible is meditation literature um, that, that is, is, is meant to invite you in, to engage your mind, to, to repeat, for you to read, reread, and read, and reflect, and read again these stories. And they build on one another. You know, this is kind of the design of Scripture. And, and one of the questions is, what's the point of all this? That just seems very excessive and exhausting. Um, you know, if you're like me and you see stuff like that, your inner Bible nerd comes out, but we're not all built the same way. Um, you might look at all this and be intimidated um, or just not interested. So what's the point? You know, the, the, this is literature that is designed for the reader to meditate in a way to get you to think about God and his purposes for you as his representatives. The point is that it leads you to wisdom. That's going to be our, our main talk next week. But the Bible is meant to lead you, to give you answers just in a different way. When you meditate on something over a long period of time, over and over, it transforms you. You just don't always see it. It's meant to lead you to wisdom, to transform your life, and sometimes without you even knowing. It's, it's not only translates or interprets itself, it invites you into a lifetime of relationship, a lifetime of reading. It slowly, once again, transforms you, gives you wisdom. And it can be easy to be discouraged about this, but, but one of the, the cool things about this is wherever you are at your cover, current level of understanding, the Bible is there with you. Um, the Bible meets you there, always offers more, and helps you grow in your understanding that more will always uh, uh, push you and, and challenge you to go for, uh, further. The Bible is always pushing and offers more. So meditation literature is deep and complex when we read it, and it is purposely designed not to show us everything at once because it's going to spend time with you over a lifetime, that relationship. So it's okay to not see everything, to understand everything at once, because the Bible is inviting you to plant yourself next to the source to keep coming back. You don't have to make charts. You don't have to color code everything. That's not for everyone. Just like biblical languages isn't for everyone. But the Bible does invite you into just reading and rereading and reflecting, especially when you don't understand. Um, when I feel like I don't understand it, it's an invitation to reread and reflect. It's okay to read it and not understand it. And maybe it's shaping you in ways that you don't see just yet. And so knowing all of this is there is important because then you can just use some of the skills and tools and the methods that we've talked about. You just use some and just those some, those little options that you start using in your Bible reading can make all the difference in the world. You start seeing things. Things will pop out to you now when you start using just some of these methods and skills. And again, maybe it's less about understanding and more about just walking in relationships, spending time in it. And that can be very freeing. You know, don't, you don't have to feel like you have to sit down and understand. I mean, I, I have that desire. You know, I want to sit down. I want to understand this. But sometimes I don't. 
Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes I have to go sit under teachers or like Susan's Bible study, and I'm like, oh, that's what that means. And that's okay. And it, 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 it uh, brings in the whole communal aspect of reading Scripture together. But that's meditation literature is that, again, invited to engage it over and over, and as we read it, we're slowly transformed. It slowly interprets itself. That all along, the Bible is leading us to wisdom, to answers, to understanding just not in the immediate gratification kind of ways that we're used to. It's meant to keep us engaged in its pages, to bring us in into its ancient design, to engage us in community, engage us in the Messiah, engage us into unity, engage us with the Spirit, all for the purpose of wisdom, which is what we'll talk about next week. So let me close with this. Jeremiah seventeen five through 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in a stony, in stony waste in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by the water, extend its roots by a stream. He will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Does that remind you of anything we've read? Um, exactly. So, so my, my whole ending, I guess, is where are you planted? That's something to reflect on, to meditate on. Where are you planted? Where do you walk? Where do you stand? Where do you sit? You don't even have to answer that question yourself because if you meditate on these passages, if you meditate on Jeremiah 17, it's going to tell you exactly where you're at. Well, do I fear? Okay, it kind of shows where I'm planted. When the heat comes, do my leaves stay green? Are you anxious in a year of drought? Do you produce fruit? It's answering it for you. But you only answer it when you meditate and reflect on what it's saying. The text uh, answers it for you, invites you in to join Jesus at the life-giving stream, the river of life, the living water. That is meditation literature. And now your your, uh, practice is to meditate on the book of Ruth. So um, if you have that, you can look at it. It's different this week. Originally, it was just this front page, and that was it. so that is your instruction. This first page will just kind of give you the goal of, of your homework this week. But uh, I included something else after I found a new book that just, I really love it. Um, and it's just an example of what meditating on the book of Ruth and, and, and tying all these kind of different facets of this paradigm in. Um, and, and one way that we can, through meditation, you find wisdom for life. And so I've included uh, the excerpt from that book. It's called Mysteries of the Messiah, Unveiling Divine Connections from Genesis to Today uh, by Rabbi Jason uh, Sobel. Um, He helps with the Chosen TV show, um, stuff like that. But it's really cool. It talks about Abraham and Lot. Okay, I'm going to spoil it just a little bit because I just love it so much. Abraham and Lot. They end up dividing, going opposite ways. Lot ends up in destruction, and they, him and his family, through very terrible uh, and immoral means, try to rebuild from themselves, create two nations. One of them's Moab, and you can read the rest in there. But Ruth is a story of Abraham and Lot coming back together. Jew, the Hebrew and the, the Moab, Moabite, Abraham and Lot, being reunited and what does that mean for all of God's people? What does that mean for us 
meditate on that and meditate on the book of Ruth and there's some cool things there. But what else can you find? Um, Yeah, that's a that's a uh, Hebrew word. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, so, yeah, your goal this week is just to meditate on Ruth yourself after everything you've read and learned and studied and et cetera. Just meditate, reflect. What does this book have to do with your life and the themes and the messages and the meanings? How does it tie in? How does it bring you wisdom? What is the wisdom it is trying to provide? Because that, that example that I shared with you is just one aspect of it. There's so much more. So let me pray. Um, and if you want to talk about anything, uh, happy to do so. I've moved all the extra handouts into the hall out there. Um, one, because we had our graduate Sunday today. Two, I'm just offering it to the rest of the church. They can grab whatever they want. It's out there. Um, but let me pray, and then uh, you're dismissed. So, Lord, I pray that we might be led to Jesus once again through this study and through the scriptures and through this meditation and be given wisdom to live our lives in light of that relationship. So, Lord, it's in your name, your powerful name that we pray. Amen.